Our Bible reading this morning is coming from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 through to 7. So it says, After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to be here this morning. This morning I want to talk about risks. When was the last time you took a big risk? Because taking a big risk is not something that we do often. And uh, a few years ago, after I graduated um, from my Bachelor of Theology, my parents rewarded me for you know this stretch of study that I did, and they gave me a gift, and that gift was skydiving. And I had a great time jumping out of a perfectly good plane at 14,000 feet, free-falling for 30 seconds or a minute or whatever it was, and then being caught by this parachute. Now, t- to some people, that's too much of a risk. You know, Josh was little at the time. I can't remember if we had Serena or not. Yeah, I think we did. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think she was very little at the time, actually. But, you know, taking risks like that is some people, something that some people just will not do because of particularly, you know, being a father of young children or that sort of thing. Um, but I figured that the guy that was strapped to my back, he didn't want to die either. Um, so I reckon we were pretty right. You know, that's how it goes. But taking risks is not something we do often. I mean, if you look at the playgrounds of yesteryear, risk was basically a built-in commodity to life in previous generations gone by. I mean, I can't see any soft fall on the ground there. Um, I can't see any height restrictions. There's no sign that you must be this tall before you can go on. There's, there's no harnesses for the people up in those massive, big, tall bits there. I mean, look at this dude just here sitting out like, you know, in the middle of nowhere. How did he get there? I don't know. Look at this guy. He's on Ninja Warrior. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's no age restrictions. Can you see how small this little fella is? He's probably about three, I reckon. Can't quite see it as good on this screen, but that's okay. But then we compare the playgrounds of yesteryear to the playgrounds of today. I think they use bright colours to cover up how boring it is. <laughs> if you think about it, every plan in the corporate world must have a risk management component that ticks all the right boxes before you can do what you need to do, usually with with exorbitant prices paid to consultants to come in and do these things as well. And then you find out, yes, you could do it, and you can do it exactly as you have been doing it, so you just do it anyway. I don't know. But as Christians, the question I have for us is, are we supposed to take risks? Are we supposed to live a risky life? Is that something we're supposed to do? Well, as we look at the first 16 verses of Acts 21 today, I hope that we'll find answers to that question. See, Acts 21 ends with, um, sorry, starts with Paul finishing his tearful goodbye to the Ephesian elders and he boards a ship as he's heading to Jerusalem. And he had several reasons to go to Jerusalem. 
First was that he wanted to continue to proclaim Christ to his own people, the Jews. And second, he'd actually collected a gift uh, from various Gentile churches which he desired to give to the church in Jerusalem who experienced a great famine at the time. And so he travels through Coz, Rhodes, Patara, Cyprus and Tyre where he stayed seven days seeking out believers and encouraged them there. But the Holy Spirit was speaking through them and were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Paul continued on to Ptolemy, sought out more believers and encouraged them there for a day. And then I want you to pick it up with me in verse 8. Today you're reading the, the scriptures, not me. Okay, so let's go. Well done. Gives my voice a break. It seems that the Spirit is very active and at work in warning Paul what will happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. That is very clear. See, twice already in Acts 21, he's been warned by prophecies about what awaits him in Jerusalem. And this, this, this time, it is very specific. He will be bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And their reaction is exactly what their reaction should be. Concern for his well-being and pleading for him to change his plans and not to go to Jerusalem, where this disastrous fate awaits him. See, their response is completely logical and not only shows how much they care about Paul's well-being, but also care about the church in general as well. Because surely the risk was too great for Paul to go to Jerusalem when he could have such a fruitful ministry to the churches all over the region. I mean, just imagine what amazing ministry he could accomplish if he remained free and wasn't locked up. That's what they're thinking, and that's completely logical, right? Don't go, because this fate will be for you. But we already know from chapter 20 that Paul is following the will of God and the leading of the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. So the question we must ask, is someone wrong? Is Paul not hearing the Spirit correctly? Or are these people not hearing the Holy Spirit correctly? Because several people have prophesied against Paul going to Jerusalem, yet Paul feels compelled by the Spirit to go. So is the Spirit saying the wrong things to who? What I think is happening here is not that the prophecies are wrong, I think that their interpretation is incorrect. And the point here is that even though prophecies may be accurate, and these ones are, prophecy still needs to be tested. Paul teaches on testing prophecies for this exact reason. In 1 Corinthians 14.29, he writes, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. And the others referred to here in this verse means the whole church not just those with gifts of prophecy or discernment. And so for there's no reason to think that those with a gift of prophecy would have better judgment than all the other Christians. And so that's one way to test, is you take it to be weighed by the people. And it's possible that those who claim to speak under the Spirit's prompting could also be mistaken. And so it's important for the assembly or for the congregation to discern whether prophecies are really from the Lord. And so 1 Thessalonians 5, 20, 21, Paul writes... Do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. And so as a church, we should be open to hearing from God in all manner of different ways, but we should be careful and we should weigh prophecies to distinguish the true from the false. And so how would we test a prophetic word? 
Well, first and foremost, it would conform to God's revealed word. Prophecies would never counter the word of God as revealed in the scriptures. If a prophecy is made that is contrary to scripture or that replaces scripture, then we know immediately that it is not of God, it's not of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it would be valuable for edification. It would be useful in building up the church and God's people. You know, that's one of the great things about prophecies, that they are that that element that, that can build into people in amazing ways. Even if it's a warning, it's still edifying because it's still God speaking to his people. And so we should also value those with a gift of discernment in this area too. And what do we do after it's been tested, after it's been weighed? We keep what's good. So here in this passage in Acts 21, I believe that Paul's interpretation is correct. He is hearing the Holy Spirit correctly. He is to travel to Jerusalem. And I also believe that the other prophecies are correct. That when he gets to Jerusalem, he will be bound and he will be imprisoned and he will be handed over to the Gentiles. But I believe their interpretation or their response to the prophecy is incorrect. See, these are to serve as preparation and warning for what is to come rather than prevent him from going. If you'd read from verse 13, please. So what's very clear here from Paul's response and from his actions is that he is prepared to risk it all for the sake of the gospel. He's not only prepared to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was content in his calling to live a life of risk. So someone might ask, well, what is risk? Risk is defined as, as an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. So an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. Going to Jerusalem was risky because he knew he would be bound, but then he was going to be given to the Gentiles also, and no one knew what would happen to him then. But Paul was, well, he was used to living a risky life. His whole life, it seems, was risk. I mean, maybe you can recount his words in Second Corinthians 11.24 where he says, Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. See, most of us would have seen the movie The Passion, right? A lot of us have seen that. Um, and we would have seen the brutal way in which Jesus' body was pretty much shredded after having these 39 lashes, if you remember that whipping scene. And they say that 40 lashes were the number that would kill a person, so they used to dish out 40 minus 1, so that these people were just hanging on for dear life by the end. And so the whip that they would use, one similar to this, was made from long leather strips that were often braided, and within those braids they'd often stick in pieces of bone, shells, rocks, you know, anything that might grip more and shred more. Pretty pretty nasty thing, because these were basically designed to tear shreds off people's backs. And so after you'd been whipped, you know, 39 of these, these lashes, uh, you would often be thrown into the dirt. Um, so you can just imagine open back wounds with dirt. You know, of course, these people got infected. They would have a fever that would last for a week or more. And if they survived then their backs would heal over in the next couple of months, just as it was. They didn't know anything about, you know, sutures or, or you know, sewing or anything like that. So their, their scars would, would be there and, and heal as this, just this gnarled, scarred back. And so those scars would tell their story then forever. And this, the Bible tells us, happened to Paul how many times? Five times. And Paul continues in this passage listing all the things he's suffered. 
So he says, five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been left shipwrecked. And night and day I have been adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Like, like this is Paul recounting what has happened to him in 2 Corinthians 11, 24, 25. And then he continues with a list that makes me say that he lived a life of risk. He didn't just experience a risk here and, and take a risk there. He lived a life of risk. He says, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, without food, in cold exposure. And apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. My goodness, Paul could never rest, could he? He never knew where the next blow was coming from. It was like he was playing a game of slaps with ten other people in the dark, yet they all had night vision goggles. Slap! Oh, slap! You know, you never know where the next one's coming from. That's like what Paul, that's the life he lived, a life of risk. So God called Paul to an unbelievable life of suffering. And he never knew where the next blow was going to come from. He lived a life of risk. But I want to ask this question. What happens if we don't risk? What what happens if we just choose the comfortable life, the harmonious life, the life of pleasure and leisure? What happens if we choose a life where we just get a stable job, a nice house away from all the troubles with many, many locks on the door? You know, we get old and happy and leave a fat inheritance to our to our children, who by that time will themselves be middle aged and uh, you know, will then be given the boost they need to just live a life of worldliness, you know, like when we die. No no risk, no risk. The good life, you know, pleasure and leisure. It sounds nice, doesn't it? It if we're honest. If we're honest, it actually sounds okay. See there's a story in the Bible about this. Uh, well, there's more than one, but I'm going to draw this one out. You know this one. Twelve spies are sent into the promised land, including Caleb and Joshua. They go in and check it out. Is it worth going in there and, and can we do it? You know, this is the question that they were posed with. Because there's giants in there. There are fortified cities like Jericho with walls. And they come back and ten of them say, we're not taking that risk. And two of them say, yeah, we can do this. With God, we can do this. See, how many churches have walked up, right up to the edge of some new calling, been on the precipice of a new and exciting path, and then a a non-risk taker has stood up in the business meeting and killed it. We can't afford that. Uh, What happens if people leave? (laughs) Then how will we pay to keep the lights and the doors open? We've got some things that need to be fixed before we we go and do that stuff. Ah, well, let's put that off until a better time. You know, I just want you know people to love me and, and, and just things to stay the same until I die. Then you can do what you like. We don't need to change a thing. Everything is great the way it is. See, that kind of mindset in a church is murderous because it kills the life that God wants to bring into churches to tackle the risks of reaching generations for Christ, of tackling issues head on and how to reach people who so desperately need to meet Jesus today. You know, God wants us to take risks. What was the cost of the Israelites 
who let the ten hold sway over the two radical believers. What was the cost? It was 40 years of aimlessness. What then could they have done if they had actually just stepped out in faith, taken a risk and walked straight into the promised land? They would have been able to save those 40 years and instead of them being aimless, they could have been purposeful. When was the last time you took a risk? Have you wasted 40 years? Oh, that one hurt, didn't it? Because I believe God calls each of us to take risks. It is foolishness to waste 40 years of aimlessness when we can instead choose to take a risk and follow the call of God to an unknown and risky future, which to some sounds terrifying, I know, but to others it sounds exhilarating and exciting. God wants us all to take risks for his glory and the good of his plans and purposes in our lives. And so what are some areas in our life that we need to take risks for God's glory and for our good? I think one of those is relationships. If you have a relationship with anybody, parent, brother, sister, friend, fiancé, wife, husband, church member, you suffer. Let me say that again. If you have a relationship with anyone, anyone, you suffer. That's the nature of relationships. We are people, right? In our core, we have a sinful nature, and often that is born out in selfishness. And so whenever we're in a relationship with somebody else, whenever we have come in contact, we will let them down at some point. And so every single relationship that we ever have brings suffering to us. That is reality. Because love suffers long. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. But to enter a relationship is to enter pain. But love, love love's all over that. So that's why we don't just all walk around like as complete wrecks because then we have the benefits that come with love and relationship that sort of sort of gloss over some of those those painful painful bits. See because love doesn't cop out. Love doesn't run away. Love doesn't throw in the towel. Love doesn't return evil for evil. Love endures and bears and comes back with kindness. And so the challenge for us is in the relationships we have with people is are we bringing love? 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, if you'd like to read that, please. I love that. Love never ends. But what's risky about love is that it's not always reciprocated. It's not always returned to you as you give it out. And so to love someone is risky. It is a pure and it is a good thing to do, but it's risky. And the blessings of sharing love to people around you are so abundant. But to step out and and express love first is a massive risk. And I'm not just talking about romantic relationships here. We've all been rejected, I'm sure, in in, in many previous lives and uh, and times. And and if we haven't, then maybe that's yet to come. Um, But but love is, is risky. The blessing of sharing love to people around you is abundant but it's risky. See, we have relationships with so many different people, friendships, family members, work colleagues, people here at church. Loving others is risky, but it's worth it. And so don't shy away from sharing love because of the risk. Embrace it because of the reward. Another area is in our witness. Paul's primary uh, risk was for the cause of Christ. 
and for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. His witness was of the abundance of grace in the gospel, offered freely to all those who repent of their sins and believe in faith that Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty once and for all for your sins, and accept the free gift of forgiveness and salvation that he offers to all. See, and that, that was a risky thing to do. Paul, he was stoned. He had to flee violence in a basket over a wall. He had to leave cities and towns because of the violence of the Jews and others towards him. But Paul never stopped witnessing to the glory of God and the grace of the gospel. He took that risk time and time and time and time and time and again. When we witness to others about the grace of the Lord Jesus, it is risky. When we testify of his goodness and power at work in our lives, it is risky. We risk being ridiculed, we risk being rejected, we risk losing, yet the payoff far outweighs the risk. Kenny was speaking recently with a mum from Mainly Music and was sharing about Joshua's start to life, and it was a bit rough at first. When Joshua was barely 24 hours old, um, I had to take him from the hospital that he was born in into the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide as they detected a heart murmur. And so he had a scan of his heart which revealed that he had quite a large hole in his heart known as a ventricular septal defect or VSD. And so in the makeup of the heart, you've got the main chambers, the left ventricle, the right ventricle. Um, this one pumps... Uh, all your, your blood through the aorta out to the rest of your body. This one pumps it through to your, your lungs and returns it. Um, but he was missing this membrane that forms in the middle and eventually becomes muscle as you grow older. But he was missing a massive part of the central wall separating those two ventricles in his heart. And so we were told to expect um, that he would have increasing trouble feeding, that he would need a feeding tube and in six to eight weeks would need to travel to Melbourne for open heart surgery to fix the defect because his blood was just mixing. So it was not being fully oxygenated and fully circulating around his body well at all. And it's funny when we look back at videos of him during this time, we go, oh my goodness, he was so, so sick. But he was our first. We knew no better. And so he, that was normal for us. And so we just loved him and brought him up as normal. But before Josh was born, uh, I believe God had been preparing me for this because I, I felt that God had been speaking to me in the weeks leading up to his birth that not everything was going to be okay, but everything's going to be okay. That, that, that's just the sense I had. Everything's going to be okay, but, but not everything's going to be okay. Not, not everything's going to be okay, but, but it'll be okay. You know, like that was just this... This, this recurring thing that came to me for weeks up to his birth. And so when he was born and he was well and Kelly was well, I was like, oh, maybe I heard God wrong. Okay, but I didn't. <laughs> and so we then went um, and had uh, appointments scheduled in um, with the, the, the pediatric cardiologist uh, every couple of days just to monitor him. And then we, we really thought, you know, we have to start praying. And so we did. We started praying for Josh. Our church prayed. Lots of our friends and family prayed. There were churches all over Australia praying because we have a very broad um, network having travelled around in ministry and stuff. And so my parents were well connected with lots of people and shared the news wide. And so it was really, really brilliant that we had so many people praying. 
And as we had weekly appointments with a specialist, every time we went and saw him, he was surprised at how well Josh was doing. We weren't surprised because what we'd been praying for was that God would heal our son and that we would be able to use this as a witness and to testify that God is a good God and that he still is active and at work in the world today. And so we passed the eight-week mark and Josh was improving. The hole seemed to be closing. Our appointment stretched from one week to two weeks, then monthly, then six weeks, then three months. And at about age one, he had another cardiogram, an echocardiogram, whatever they call them, on his heart. And the hole was all but closed completely. Praise God. And uh, Kelly was sharing this story with a mum at Mainly Music several weeks ago. And uh, she said, well, you know, my son has a hole in his heart. And after hearing your story, I believe God will heal our son. And then they left here and went to see their doctor and their son's hole had been healed. So the payoff when we risk and share our testimony and be a witness to the glory of grace in Jesus Christ is that someone might be healed Someone might come to know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as their Lord and Saviour. You know, the payoff might be that someone is introduced to the person and work of Jesus Christ, that a seed might be sown that one day grows into a mighty tree of faith. The payoff is that people could experience healing and life. If you'd read Romans 8.35. So the basis of our risk-taking is the fact that we cannot ultimately take a risk for God. See, every sacrifice we make, everything negative that comes to us, God takes it and makes us more than a conqueror in it. It does not just defeat us, it becomes our servant to bring us home to glory. I mean, really, can we actually take a risk as Christians? We can because we've got full confidence that we'll be made more than conquerors as we take out and step out in those risks. And so let's be bold and take some risks. Let's live a life full of faith, full of obedience to Christ, full of activity that brings glory to God. Let's dream audacious dreams. Let's take risks for the sake of Christ and his mission here in the North East Let's pursue a way of living that draws people to the personal work of Jesus. Let's be a church that takes risks together to see amazing things happen, to bring glory to God, that bring the hope of the gospel, that reach families with faith, that share love recklessly, that serve vigorously, that worship with vitality. Let's be a people that pray with enthusiasm, care with abundant compassion, give with freedom and celebrate the gospel daily. Oh, could we be that those people, hey? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have given us an example of a life that was lived in risk in the life of Paul. And Lord, may we step out and take risks for your glory and the good of your gospel in our lives, in the life of this church and in the moments we have to, to share Jesus with those around us. Lord, I pray that we would be bold and that we would step out and take those risks. Lord, don't let us be held back by anything that might constrain us, but Lord, let us step out and become conquerors in those. For we are convinced that neither death 
nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blessings and we ask your encouragement to continue to live a life of risk for your gospel. I pray. Amen.